title of this morning's message is simply Final Exhortations. I know, not very creative, I'm sorry. Uh, that's, that's what this, this final stretch of, of text here in chapter 4 really represents. Uh, verses 4 through 9 are Paul's really final teaching moments. Uh, his final challenges and imperatives, um, directives that he is going to impart to this church here at Philippi. It, it really is focused in at this, this final time of verses four through nine. So that's, that's the title of our message and that will be an extension of, of next week as we, we finish out verses eight and nine. Um, but as we look at these final exhortations, and we look at how Paul kind of structures uh, this, this, this paragraph. It's almost as if Paul is, is rushed, right? I don't, I don't know if you've been reading through this beforehand, but, but chapter four, as you might have listened along with Pastor Dave as he read it, it's, it's almost as if he understands that the end is coming near and, and he's got to just get these, these final things almost in shotgun style, just getting these exhortations, these imperatives out there one after another. And as I was reflecting on how Paul structures this, I, I resonated with it. I, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like this. If you can think back, maybe at some point in your youth, uh, a young person, a, a teenager, maybe going off to college, and maybe you're going to visit, maybe grandma, grandpa, something like that. And the, the, the time of that trip or that vacation or that season of life is, is ending and you're about to leave. All right? You, can you think about a scenario like that? And, and you're with mom or you're with grandma and the car is, is running in the driveway. You've said your goodbyes two and three and four times, and you're going back for another hug, or whatever it might be, and you're walking out the door, and mom is following you, kind of giving you these just myriad of things that she wants to make sure that you've got locked down. Mom's saying, you know, did you, you know, you, do you have your toothbrush? Don't forget your toothbrush, and if you have your toothbrush, make sure you use it, and you know, for, this is guys, right? This is what I'm resonating with here. You know, do, do you have your deodorant and, you know, make sure you use it. Maybe I'm going off to camp and she's saying, make sure you shower every day or, you know, whatever. This is fresh on my mind because we just came back a couple months ago from teen camp. So these are things that um, we need to remind ourselves of sometimes. But, you know, your grandma's saying, hey, I packed you, you know, a, an extra sandwich in your bag. You know, if, you know, whatever it might be, it's just, you know, going one after another. And maybe your dad's telling you to you know, hey, when you stop, you know, check the oil or, you know, do this or that. There's these final things that are just following you out the door and, and we're kind of nodding our head. Yeah, yeah, I got it. Everything's under control. Maybe I didn't good, do a good job of painting that picture, but maybe you can uh, put yourself in a similar spot of maybe you remember a final moment with somebody and, and they're just making sure that you've checked all the boxes and that you're just, you're just going to be okay. And in a similar sense, this is the Apostle Paul. He knows that this letter has to come to an end. He knows he's in house arrest. He's imprisoned. He's likely feeling 
and sensing that not only the end of his ministry may come soon, but the end of his life is imminent. Persecution is, is ramping up. And Paul is pouring out his heart with apostolic power, with crystal clarity, and with great passion. And so although these seemingly little nuggets of challenge and exhortation, these imperatives are sequentially one after another, we can just easily, like that young person walking out the door, kind of give a nod of, of assent and agreement saying, yeah, 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 I, I got that. I, I understand. I know it. But in reality, I think Paul has much for us in these simple but yet deeply important imperatives for us to consider. So in these final exhortations, our big idea is going to be this. The God of peace promises peace to those who are by God's grace, living lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. The God of peace promises peace to those who are by God's grace, living lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. If you'll remember with me back to Philippians chapter number one, verse number 27, Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of, of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The admonition, the exhortation there in the first chapter of Philippians was to only, with a singularity of mind, let your lives be worthy of the gospel of Christ. If you'll remember verse, uh, chapter number two, verses 12 through 13, therefore, Paul says, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul is looking back on these exhortations, these challenges to live their lives worthy of the gospel, to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. He's thinking about all the teaching and, and doctrine and exhortations that he's given to this point. And in this final section of teaching, Paul is saying this is what it could look like. This is what it should look like to manifest a life that is being lived worthy of the gospel. This is the flesh on the bones of what it looks like to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It could look like these seven imperatives that, that Paul, one after another, gives in these final statements in chapter number four. So he's looking back to these core themes, these thesis statements, if you will, of his letter, and he's offering some additional insight, again, as to what it looks like to live out these things on a daily basis. So without... Much of a transition from verses two and three that Pastor Andy uh, took us through last week. Paul moves on from this budding disunity that he calls out, challenging them to do what? To agree in the Lord. And he moves right into these seven imperatives that start here in verse number four. 
Let's read chapter number four. Get there myself. Verse number four. Paul starts with the first imperative, the first two imperatives. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. So we're just gonna let our text be the guide for our points this morning. Nothing too, too cute or fancy on our our, our points. We've got three points, and we're going to uh, allow these first five imperatives to be packaged in these, these three points. And our first one that we're going to look at this morning is simply the exhortation to rejoice always. Verse number four, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. If you've been in the church at any amount of time, you've heard this verse. The simplicity of rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. I got it, Eric. Let's move on to the next imperative. Well, let's pump the brakes a little bit. Let's consider why Paul would circle back to this challenge, this exhortation, this imperative to do what? To rejoice in the Lord. Do you remember chapter number three, verse number one, Paul started out that chapter saying, finally, my brothers, again, remember he, he gave us the, uh, he psyched us out a bit on closing out his letter there in, in the beginning of chapter three. Finally, brothers, this was not his conclusion, but rather a challenge to do what? To rejoice in the Lord. Throughout this book, there's been this core theme of joy, that Paul wanted to anchor his readers on, for them to remember the hope that they have in Jesus Christ, despite what present circumstances may tell them, despite what suffering they may be experiencing, despite what troubles may come, we can have joy and thus rejoice in the Lord because Christ has risen. Because of the gospel, no matter what this world can give us, we have reason to rejoice. Do you believe that this morning? So the word for rejoice here is chiro. This word carries with it the idea of enjoying a state of happiness and well-being, to be glad and to rejoice. With that basic definition of rejoice, we could maybe scratching our head and, and trying to answer the question, wait a second, is is, is Paul then drawing our attention to present circumstances, this state of, of well-being, this state of happiness that we can be glad and rejoice? Well, no, Paul is pointing our attention away from present circumstances, and he's causing us to point our attention to whom? To Jesus Christ, on a person, the one who met our needs so perfectly and completely. He alone can give us joy. And he alone is the source for our rejoicing. So this state of happiness, this state of well-being, this gladness that leads us to praise and rejoicing, this is a, a product of our salvation. He's causing us to remember what Jesus has done for us. To remember chapter two, to remember this perfect savior who left the prerogatives of heaven and came and took on flesh and modeled so perfectly humility, went to a cross, shed his blood, humbled himself, and that at his name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he 
is Lord. No matter what this life brings, whether we have much life or whether we have a short life, we have reason to rejoice. When circumstances dictate our joy, we are not rejoicing. When present circumstances define our joy, whom are we trusting in? Ourselves. So this call, this challenge, this imperative, this exhortation to rejoice always is a reminder for us exactly of what we need to be focused on, and it is the gospel. Rejoice in whom? The Lord. Paul didn't just tell us what to do. He didn't just say rejoice. Just be glad. Just have this manufactured disposition about you. Just just rejoice because, why, I told you so. No, he pointed us to the cause and the reason for our rejoicing. We are to rejoice in whom? The Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. So then, this imperative of joy Happiness, well-being, it's not rooted, again, in our present circumstances or the prevailing winds of chance. Our rejoicing is rooted in the truth of the gospel. And when our rejoicing is rooted in the truth of the gospel, Paul says there should be a certain measure of frequency to this rejoicing. Rejoice in the Lord when? Always. So we have the what? What is the exhortation? Rejoice. We have the how or the whom in the Lord. And now we have the when. Always. You see, because when our rejoicing is not placed in the fleeting pleasures of present circumstances, but rather when our, when our joy and our rejoicing is rooted in the gospel, when it's rooted in the truth, it never changes. When our joy and our happiness is defined by present circumstances, those will always change. Present circumstances are not static. They are always dynamic. They're always going to be going up and down, favorable, unfavorable, sorrow, joy. This is the reality of life. This is the reality of living in a world that's broken by sin. We will face trouble. We will have hard times. We will be persecuted. We will have suffering. We will experience loss. But friends, even in those seasons, we can Rejoice. Why? Because of the truth of the gospel. That this world is not our home. The present circumstances, these light and momentary afflictions, they will be gone. They will cease. And the hope that we have in the gospel is that we will experience a relationship with him for all eternity. Where there is no sorrow. There is no weeping. There is no sin. There is no brokenness where God will right every wrong. This is the hope that we have in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So there's a frequency to rejoicing. Rejoice in the Lord always. There's there's never a season of life where we do not have reason to praise the Lord, as the song that we sang this morning declared. Our present circumstances do not define our joy. The truth of the gospel never changes. By God's grace, we can always Rejoice. This is why Paul could say, use the same word in Colossians chapter number one, verse number 24. Now I rejoice 
in my sufferings for your sake, Paul said. How could Paul rejoice in his sufferings? He knew the hope that he had of eternity. That even if the sufferings that he could experience could could go to the, the greatest extent that could ultimately take his life, he knew that even in that, for me to live is to die. Christ is gain, right? Absent with the body is present with the Lord. This is the hope that Paul had. This is why James could boldly proclaim, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Joy and rejoicing in the midst of suffering and trials. How is this possible? See, friends, what we rejoice in reveals what we are trusting in. So when Paul challenges us, exhorts us, admonishes us to rejoice in the Lord always, he's causing us to remember the gospel always. To trust in the Lord with all our heart and to lean not into our own understanding. In all of our ways, acknowledge him, knowing that he gives us this promise that he will direct our paths. This is the reality that Paul is drawing our attention to. So the joy of the Lord can and should transcend the present circumstances of this world. Why? Because the joy of the Lord Friends, do you remember this? The joy of the Lord is not of this world. The joy of the Lord is supernatural. It is Holy Spirit enabled. The world has no control over the joy that Christ offers us. And so that joy can be constant. It can be sure in the midst of life's difficulties and trials. This world can't steal the joy that we have in Jesus. It can steal our life. It can steal our circumstances. It can steal the the convenience that we may have in this life. But the thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy cannot take our joy in Christ. So then rejoice in the Lord always. Paul doubles down on this imperative to to list it a second time in verse number four. Again, Paul says, I will say rejoice. This sounds similar to Paul's uh, challenge in chapter three, verse number one. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And he reminds them, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Paul is fine repeating himself, and he knows that we need a reminder to do what? To rejoice in the Lord. Why? Because although we believe these things in our heart and our minds, we are still bound by this flesh. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, and so we need to not only believe the gospel, but we need to rehearse the gospel daily. Moment by moment, when, when we feel our hearts fading, when, when we feel doubt creeping in, we need to pray to the Lord, Lord, in that moment, help my unbelief. Let me rejoice in you. Let me remember the gospel. Preach the gospel to your doubt. Because, friends, what we feed is ultimately what will grow in our life. 
And if we feed ourselves by God's grace and through the ministry of his Holy Spirit, through his word, through fellowship with the brothers and sisters in Christ, if we feed, have a steady diet of the gospel, guess what we're gonna believe? We're gonna believe that God is good and we're gonna rejoice always. And we're gonna walk in obedience to this exhortation. The joy of the Lord is supernatural. The promise of everlasting life with our Savior, Jesus Christ, is it's an inexpressible joy that this world can never take away. So then, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Why Why would Paul repeat this again? He's already repeated it once before, multiple times throughout this letter to the church at Philippi. He also knows how hard Satan is going to work through spiritual warfare to steal our joy. Although he can't, although he has no control over it, Satan will work overtime to bring in circumstances and suffering and persecution and trials and challenges in our way to keep us from remembering what the Lord has done. The reality of it is this, that present circumstances will always expire, but there is no expiration date on what the gospel has secured on our behalf. It is finished, amen? It is is done. The story has been fully written. Their joy in Christ, their security in Christ, their victory in Christ, their inheritance in Christ. No one, not even Satan, not even the thief that has come to steal, kill, and destroy, no one can take these realities away. No one can rewrite that story. And friends, when we rejoice and we rejoice always, we are remembering the finished story of the gospel. And we're remembering the hope that is still yet to come for all eternity. So rejoice always. Our second point and our third imperative is this. Be reasonable with everyone. Be reasonable with everyone. The word used here in the Greek is a pia case has the idea of being gentle, mild, and forbearing. This speaks to how you carry yourself. It's it's a body language. It's a a disposition. It's a demeanor that, that is about you. We're challenged to do what? To be reasonable with everyone. Paul says in verse number five, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Paul would have his readers to consider the posture of their heart. Is it proud? Is it arrogant? Is it selfish? Is it angry? Paul uses this word that the ESV translates here, reasonableness. He uses it again in 2 Corinthians Chapter number 10, verse number one, Paul gives a great example of this broader context. He says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness 
of Christ. There's our word here in 2 Corinthians 10. It's translated as gentleness. Christ is our example in living this way. This exhortation to be reasonable with everyone, it's an exhortation to model Christ-likeness. Think about the engagements that Christ had as you think through different interactions in the Gospels. Think about Paul's earlier admonition in chapter number two to have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This mind of what? Humility, deference, counting others more significant than yourselves. This is the heart and disposition of let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Do you remember Romans Chapter number 12, verses 17 and 18, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Paul says that this type of living should be known. Do you see it there in verse number five? Let your reasonableness be known. Isn't that interesting? Paul not only challenges us to have this demeanor and disposition, this mindset and attitude about us, but he he challenges us to let it be known. Let it be visible. Let it be experienced. This word here for be known, it comes from that Greek word gnosko. This, This word carries with it more of an experiential type of knowledge. We should be known by this reasonableness and gentleness. Others should be able to see it and experience it. Have you had a relationship in your life at one point or another, like a a challenging relationship, somebody that the Lord has has put in in your life for whatever reason, maybe for a season or for your entire lifetime, uh, that is just a little bit of a challenge? Have you ever had any of these challenging relationships before? where you engage in that relationship and you go away from it almost exhausted, like, like it takes a lot of effort to engage in that relationship. Um, you're weary, maybe you know, there's some immaturity there or, or maybe there's um, just personality between you and them, maybe just doesn't mesh and, and you go away just kind of wiping your brow saying, whoo, man, that was, that was a tough one. And of course, none of those relationships are in this room. I would never say that. But I'm sure you can think of somebody in your life where you've had that type of conversation with. That's an experience, isn't it? You go away from that relationship and they are known by you in the way that they present themselves and how they converse and their demeanor and their disposition with their energy with their topics that they choose and, and, and how they interact with you. That's, it's, our relationships are an experience. And so Paul says that our relationships, our interactions with others, that we should be known, they should experience what? Gentleness and reasonableness as a result of interacting 
with us. Others should feel a certain way when they come away from a moment of relationship with us. Are we known then in this moment of application? Are we known by our gentleness? Are we known by our reasonableness, our meekness? Friends, the reality is is that Jesus was known in this way. This was the testimony of his life. When, When people interacted with Jesus, they came away with the experience that Jesus was a reasonable human being. He was gentle and and meek. This this was their experience. And so Paul challenges us to let our reasonableness, our gentleness be known. To whom? Everyone. Similar to our first and second imperatives of rejoicing always, Paul is going to provide another all-inclusive word to help define the scope and scale of our reasonableness and gentleness. We're to offer this spirit and disposition to everyone. There's no trump card. There's no, hey, I can be gentle and reasonable to everybody except for these five people on my list that don't deserve my reasonableness or that I don't see eye to eye with. Our reasonableness should be known to everyone, even those that don't align with your background and experiences, even those that may not be aligned with your political preferences, even those that may be hostile even to the message of the gospel. We are to be reasonable and we are to be gentle. We are to share truth in how? Love. Paul layers on to this exhortation of letting our reasonableness be known to everyone. He layers in this this final phrase as we transition to verse number six. Right in the the middle of these, these exhortations, Paul makes this statement, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is is at hand, he's raising the stakes, he's reminding us of the urgency, really of all these exhortations, but directly to this one right here, lest we be tempted to grow complacent in the work of the Lord, lest we be tempted to compromise on this call to reasonableness, Paul reminds us that the Lord is at hand. And in all transparency, there's some challenges with this phrase and understanding exactly what Paul is referring to. But if we look back on some of the other day of the Lord comments that Paul has made in this letter, we know that Paul's statement here likely is referring to the imminent return of the Lord. It's, it's eschatological in its nature. This is a phrase that should draw our attention to reality that this world is not our home, We're just passing through. The Lord is coming back and eternity will be before us. The Lord is at 
hand. Because of the imminent return of the Lord, let your reasonableness and gentleness be known to everyone. Rejoice always. Be reasonable with everyone. Our third and final point this morning is going to cover the fourth and fifth imperatives. And we're going to we're going to package them together in this third and final point as, as Paul seems to connect both of these uh, imperatives together. So our, our final and third point this evening, or this morning, excuse me, will be this. Be anxious about nothing and pray about everything. Rejoice always, be reasonable with everyone, be anxious about nothing and pray about everything. We see this in verse number six. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So when we think of this first exhortation here in verse number six, do not be anxious about anything. We just stop and... We need to read that over and over and over again. Do not be anxious about anything. Once again, in this all-inclusive way, there are no outs, there are no specific situations where Paul would say, hey, this exhortation doesn't apply if X comes about. You know what? You can be anxious if you experience. No, Paul says be anxious about nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. There's really only two responses that could be deployed to this, this first admonition, to do not be anxious about anything. First, our one response could be we, we carry our burdens imperfectly and we worry. That's one response that we could, we could have to this. The second response could be this. We, we cast our burdens on the Lord through prayer and he will perfectly provide what is needed. We cast our burdens on the Lord through prayer and he will perfectly provide what is needed. And I think this is a key nuance into this topic about worry and fret and fear. And anxiety. Oftentimes, we're not content with what is needed. We're concerned about what is wanted. When life's circumstances don't play out the way that we think they should, we worry. When the curveball of life comes and our master plan is ruined, we fret. When all the dominoes don't fall right into place, we become anxious. The Lord will perfectly provide what is needed. Friends, in this moment, as we just reflect on this exhortation 
and we consider a world that is being devastated by anxiety. When you think of all the challenges that we see in culture and society with a decline in mental health and all the statistics of adolescents struggling with with mental health and depression, ultimately a lot of it comes down to anxiety and fear. In those moments, it's never as easy as stop this and, and start that. It's always much more com- complicated than that. But in our moment of anxiety, in our moment of doubt and fret, we have an opportunity just to stop and to be still and know that he is God. Because ultimately, the second exhortation that's attached to the to verse number six, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to whom? God. Let your request be known to God. When we worry and fret, when we embrace anxiety, we are focused inward on ourselves. When we give that over to God in prayer, we transition from looking inward to looking outward and upward and we cast our gaze now once again on the Lord and we remember that God the Father, a good, good Father, has met our deepest and greatest need, the problem of sin. What we deserved was hell. He provided for that need through his own son, Jesus Christ. And because of that, We can come boldly before the throne of grace and we can find help in our time of need. This is the reality. This is the, there's a process. There's a transition that we we look inward to transition outward as we don't be anxious about anything and we embrace this exhortation to take our cares to a God who cares. Don't be anxious. When we worry, it reveals that we are trusting or believing, we are not, excuse me, trusting or believing in who God is. We doubt his character. We doubt his faithfulness. We doubt his love. So friends, let's look at this again, reminding us that Paul is not ordering his readers to adhere to some baseless command. He's exhorting his readers to remember the Lord. And when we do, we remember his grace. When we remember his grace, we remember the gospel. When we remember the gospel, we remember once again that God met our need at Calvary and God can meet our need at Calvary. He can care for our moment that we're experiencing right now. You remember Matthew chapter number six, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus Christ says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink nor your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food in the body, more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, Jesus says. They neither sow nor reap, 
nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them? Are you not more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, Jesus said. How they grow, they they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Therefore, Jesus says, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat, or or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear for the Gentiles seek after all these things? And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Do not be anxious about anything, but rather pray about everything, Paul says. So Paul gives an admonition of an act and an attitude. Do you see it? The act is prayer. But in everything by prayer and supplication. This is the act, prayer and supplication. The attitude is what? With thanksgiving. The Lord desires not just the act, but the attitude of thanksgiving. Gratitude and thanksgiving is an attitude that that our prayers are made to the Lord. It's interesting as we consider who God is, we know that he is all-knowing. The Lord doesn't need to be instructed by our prayers as if he doesn't already know them, but he desires us to verbalize our prayers back to him. And these prayers are just as much or maybe more so for us or as they are for the Lord, but, but it's ultimately a process that we go through in verbalizing our prayer to the Lord. Our, we bring our supplication, our worries, our anxieties, our frets, the uncertainties of life, we, we bring them to the Lord through prayer and supplication with the spirit of thanksgiving, knowing that God, you're sovereign You're a good God that even if these circumstances don't leave, even if my life doesn't pan out how I thought it would be, I still have much to praise the Lord about. So I'm gonna be thankful. I'm gonna be grateful. And this is your your disposition, your demeanor that you're coming to the Lord with, knowing that even our cares need to be reminded of all that the Lord has done for us. So this process of making these requests known to God, it's, it serves as a tangible part of us releasing worry and fret and anxiety and placing our trust now in the Lord. In our ch- children's church time in the month of September, my wife and I had the opportunity to, uh, to lead that class. And um, I'm thankful for that time. We're not just... Uh, playing games down there and, and filling time. We are desiring to be intentional and purposeful to teach um, these young children about the Lord. And uh, it, it just in God's timing, there's a question that was, was asked through our curriculum. We, we use uh, the New City Catechism. It's, 
It's a great resource, a great tool, great content. And the question was simply, what is faith in Jesus? The answer to that was twofold. It called out that faith in Jesus is both resting and receiving the free gift of salvation through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I love those two R words. Kids, do you remember them? Resting and receiving. To me, this perfectly describes what Paul is calling us to do here. Don't be anxious, but rest in the character of God. Don't try to figure things out by yourself. Simply receive what God is willing to give you through the ministry of prayer and supplication. Finally, what is produced as a result of this transfer of of worry, fret, and fear over to the Lord through prayer and supplication? What is produced? What happens as a result of obedience to these imperatives? Verse seven, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding. Friends, we cannot begin to wrap our minds around the promise and the hope and the glory and the majesty of what is offered to us, the peace of God. The God, the creator of all things, the author of peace, promises peace through the prince of peace so that we can experience peace this side of eternity. Friends, peace is something that this world is longing for, that they're grasping for, that they're looking for, and they're trying to find it in all other ways. But ultimately, only through the personal work of Jesus, through a right relationship with God, can peace be secured in our life. Apart from the gospel, apart from Jesus, apart from a right relationship with God, peace will always be temporal and fleeting, So we're reminded of the quality of this peace. It is the peace of God. King of kings, the Lord of lords, the alpha, the omega, the creator of the entire universe is the one who offers this peace. He created peace. It is the best peace. There is no other peace that could compare to the peace of God. So friends, don't settle for anything else but the peace of God. Our hearts and our minds are guarded by this peace. It passes all understanding. It's an incredible peace. The quality of it is something that our finite minds cannot even comprehend. But this peace that God offers us through his son, Jesus Christ, it will guard our hearts and our minds. Our hearts are our feelings. Our minds, it is our thinking. So the peace of God instructs our minds and instructs our hearts and instructs our thinking and our feelings. In our moment of fear, the peace of God will guard, it will protect, it will keep us secure in the Lord. Friends, because we are at peace with God, we can walk in this peace day by day, trusting in the perfect 
plan of the Lord. Rejoice always, be reasonable with everyone, be anxious about nothing, and pray about everything. These three points here covered our first five imperatives next week. We'll finish this list of seven imperatives covering six and seven in verses eight and nine. And uh, looking forward to finishing out this paragraph. Hope the Lord challenged your heart and mind this morning. Would you join me in prayer as we close our time in the word? Father God, we thank you that you're sovereign. As we consider these imperatives, these exhortations to rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, to let our reasonableness be known to everyone as we remember that uh, Jesus, your, your imminent return is near. I pray that that urgency would stir our hearts. And as we remember finally to not be anxious about anything, but in everything, through prayer and supplication, let our request be known to God. And I pray, Father, this morning that we would experience the peace of God. Father, I know just by way of testimony and conversation that there are many even here this morning that are looking for peace. They're looking for wisdom and understanding and clarity. And Father, I pray that we would consider your word and we would run to you in prayer. That we would lay our burdens at the foot of the cross. That we would go boldly before the throne of grace. That we would remember that your Holy Spirit is before your throne now. Making supplications before your throne with groanings and, and words that, that can't even be understood or comprehended, that we can't even stir up in our own mind and heart. Father, I thank you that you have given us the counselor, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, and I pray that your spirit would stir our hearts this morning, that we would consider these exhortations and we would simply respond to them rightly in childlike obedience. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please, please stand again. Um, we want to sing uh, Rejoice Again. And um, uh, for those who might.